tonight. Welcome to Bible study. It's nice to see everyone. I mean that. All right, let's uh, take a moment. We'll pray and then we'll get started with the Bible study portion. Father, thanks for meeting with us tonight and thank you God for just pouring out your love into our lives. Uh, we thank you that you care and that you desire more and more in your relationship with us. I pray that we would respond in kind and uh, would make ourselves available for that deeper place and that loving place with you. I just ask you, God, tonight that you would draw us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that uh, we would respond I pray, God, that uh, we would allow you to speak and have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, to me, tonight. So, God, uh, we thank you for uh, just a a personal life with you, an abiding life with you. And we ask, God, that you would bless this time, pray you'd anoint this time, and pray that your word would be prophetic into our lives, creative by its very nature. We ask God boldly that uh, you would change us. And we pray, God, and build an expectation for that kind of change in our lives tonight. We give you honor, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet, book of Isaiah chapter 37, if you need a Bible, there should be one located on the table. Isaiah chapter 37, reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Isaiah 37, verses 14 and 15. Someone read that when you get there. All right, thanks. Uh, what's going on here, just as, a, as some background uh, to the verses, uh, Hezekiah uh, had received word that the Assyrians were coming. And at the time, the Assyrians were, they were the biggest and the meanest. Uh, they had the best army, they had supplies, they had money, they had personnel, they had chariots, they had horses, uh, and they were just rolling over every kingdom. And so the the idea here is that uh, the Assyrians had targeted Israel, Judah. They had targeted Jerusalem in particular. And they had sent word that they would be coming. And that they were going to surround the city. And they were going to lay siege to the city. And in no uncertain terms, they said they were going to starve them out. And they were going to take the city. And so they had sent 
uh, one of the commanders of their armies, which I, it's kind of a curious thing in the Bible, uh, in this passage of scripture, if either you're looking in Kings or you're looking in Isaiah, there's a, kind of a curious thing where this, uh, he's some kind of a commander of officers in the Assyrian army, but they give him a name in the Bible. Uh, they call him by the name that they use for the Assyrians, the Reb Sheka. And it's, it's curious to me because anywhere else you'd think that they would just use whatever he was, his position. Uh, even though we don't have a similar position necessarily in our armies or the way that we see armies, um, I would say that's true for most of the, uh, the armies that we read about in the Bible, that they had different positions, different names for their positions, different officers, different names for their officers and all that. But the Reb Sheka is is described by name, even though that just describes his position in the kingdom. And so the Reb Sheka had come personally to Jerusalem and had engaged in letting everybody know in Jerusalem that the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, was going to come and they were all going to be starved to death and they were going to die. And as they came and he was shouting outside the city, at the leadership of the city, I mean, the, the, the people that were trying to speak with him and the people that were trying to deal with him, they said, you don't have to speak to us in Hebrew, you can speak to us in your own language, we can understand you. And the Reb Sheka was like, no, I want to speak to you in your own language because I want everybody in the city to hear what's about to happen to them. And so he engaged in a certain amount of of psyops with uh, not only the leadership in Jerusalem, but also with the people of the city. And why that's important is to understand that part of his job when he had showed up to Jerusalem was to psych them out. That was his job. He was to cause just hopelessness. He was to cause them to question their resolve. He caused to cause them to question their God. He said it caused them to question what God had said. It caused them to question what they believed. I don't know if this doesn't sound familiar, but that's kind of what the devil does, all right? And so the Reb Sheka, interestingly, is given a name so that we can refer to him as such. He took on the role of what we would see as a demonic role or the role of the devil. And so part of his job was to try and destroy the faith, not only of the leadership of Jerusalem, but also of the people. And so when the Reb Sheka had left, and th there was a miraculous thing that took place when the Reb Sheka left, and you can read about that earlier on, but they left, the king, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, had sent a letter to Hezekiah. And pretty much what the letter had said was about the same thing that the Reb Shekha was talking about. And the letter was designed and it was given in order to try and destroy the faith of King Hezekiah. In the letter, uh, Sennacherib is making fun of God. In the letter, he's questioning whether or not God would be able to stop him. And he uses all the examples of all the kingdoms where they had believed that their gods could stop him. And yet they couldn't. They were never able to do it. And so he was saying, now they all had faith, they all believed, and it didn't do them one bit of good because we came in and we rolled over them and we destroyed them. And the same exact thing is going to happen to you. That's what he was telling them. And so, in no uncertain terms, I mean, he just he laid it out. He said, you can, you can say you believe and all the rest of that kind of stuff. He said, it's not going to do you a bit of good because we're going to come in there and we're going to destroy you. And that's what Hezekiah had read in that letter. So, what you're seeing here in these verses that we're looking at in Isaiah 37, verses 14 and 15, you're seeing the response of Hezekiah to the letter. That's how he responded. So, they had already met the Reb Sheka. They had already seen a miraculous deliverance from the Reb Sheka. Now they were reading the letter, he was reading the letter from the king of the Assyrians, Sennacherib. And basically, as I said, making fun of God, 
Do not believe God. Don't let your God trick you. Those are the things. Those are the main themes of that letter. And so the Bible tells us that Hezekiah tore his clothes. Right? He rent his garment. And then he takes that letter and he goes into the house of God, which would have been the temple at the time. He walks into the temple with this letter and he spreads it out and he lays it before God on the altar. Now, what I want you to think about when it comes to him spreading this letter out, there's a couple things I want you to think about with that. I want you to, first of all, think about that this is a an appeal that he's making by spreading the letter out. In other words, he's saying it's, it's, it's mute, in a sense. He's not saying anything. But the very act of laying it out, he is saying something. It's a recognition. It's a recognition that he is not going to be able to stop Sennacherib. It's a recognition that he doesn't have the troops, a recognition he doesn't have the army for it, a recognition he doesn't have the supplies for it, a recognition he doesn't have the money for it, a recognition he can't go out and he can't hire mercenaries for it. All of these things he recognizes. And when he brings this letter in, it signifies, and what it really says is, is that he doesn't have the resources. And he's recognizing the fact that he doesn't have the resources. That this isn't going to be up to him. This isn't going to be something that he's going to be able to figure out. It's not something he's going to be able to overcome in his own strength. He's recognizing he just doesn't have the firepower to do anything about it. And the reason that's an important recognition is that he's looking to God and he's saying, This is you. And when the Bible talks about this letter, it's a plural in the Hebrew. In other words, letters, or more than one page of the letter that he's spreading out. And and, what, and you can think about it this way, and uh, kind of interestingly, he's laying it out as evidence. Because he's taking it to the the arbiter, the one that is able to actually make a decision and do something about it recognizing that he can't. <clears throat> now, well, the reason that's important, if you think about your own life, you think about situations, circumstances that you face in your own life, the thing that hinders us a lot of times from really receiving the provision of God is that we think we can do it ourselves. And... And I know that most of us are kind of raised with that, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get her done kind of mentality, which I understand it. I mean, that's how I was raised. It's like, nobody's coming, so that's up to you, buddy. And and so, I, I get that. And yet, we rob ourselves, I believe, when we don't just take that, lay it before God and see what He has to say about it. Before we start scheming, before we start trying to figure it out in our own strength, before we start trying to figure out our resources, why don't we take it to God and see what He has to say about it? And that's what Hezekiah did. I mean, Hezekiah could have tried to say, oh, well, if I do A, B, and C, then maybe, or if I do D, E, and F, maybe, or maybe A, B, and F, I don't know. You know, and he could have, you know, really gone to town trying to to problem solve it and try to figure it out, but... He really wasn't, it's not going to happen. And so he just takes the whole thing and he spreads that out as evidence before the arbiter and he says, here you go. This is what I got. And, and uh, you know, it, it's kind of interesting that Sennacherib makes fun of the arbiter in the letter. And I don't know if you know much about uh, going to court one thing you don't want to do is make fun of the judge. That's a bad idea. It's just a bad idea to make fun of the judge. Even if you don't like the judge, just keep your mouth shut. Because that judge is going to be making decisions. That judge is going to be weighing out the evidence. That judge is the one that's going to be making the decisions as you move forward. 
And so Sennacherib, in his pride, Sennacherib, uh, in, in whatever it was that was driving him, had, was making fun of the living God. He was making fun of the God of Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah, I think smartly, when he comes before the Lord, he lays that letter out, and he lays it out as evidence to the arbiter, but what existed in that letter was someone so prideful, his words were so prideful that he was making fun of the judge. Bad idea. Just a bad idea. I think I think sometimes we will take things personally that, that really aren't directed at us. Especially when they're directed at our God. And we should keep that in mind when we run into those kind of situations and we run into those kind of circumstances where we face certain things that aren't really directed at us, but they're directed at the one who sent us. They're not really directed at us, but they're directed at the one who empowered us. They're not really directed at us, but they're directed at the one who's leading and guiding us. And there's something right about taking that and just laying it before him since it's directed at him anyway. Hezekiah did that, he took that, he laid that before him. And what we see here is, uh, and, and it's this idea, in the New Testament you see this idea uh, as a casting of our burdens or a casting of our cares before the Lord. That's what Hezekiah was doing. Somebody look at First Peter. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. This is a general letter that Peter had written to the early church. And in this general letter to the early church, he was giving them some instructions about what they were supposed to do. Now, I want you to think about it. In the early church, things weren't always easy. In the early church, there were portions of the church that were facing persecution at one time or another. Where that persecution was taking place in Jerusalem, or that persecution was taking place in Rome, or that persecution was taking place in other parts of the Roman Empire that the gospel was spreading to and the church was growing in. There was persecution that was happening almost all the time at the beginning of the early church. I mean, Paul was witness to that. Uh, you read the list of all the things that Paul faced. I mean, he was beaten with rods. He was stoned, left for dead. He'd been shipwrecked a number of times. There were a number of times he, he had to leave cities in fear of his life. And so there were these things that were happening. Persecution was a part of their daily lives and a part of what it was to be the early church. And so Peter, when he's writing this general epistle, this is a, a letter that's going to go out to all the different branches of the church, wherever the church had been planted. And he was writing this in mind that whether or not the, the church that received that letter, this particular church is facing persecution right now, it would. Or whether they had faced persecution in the past, but maybe they weren't now or these or they would again. And so he understood that that was going to be a part of what it was to be a Christian. It was going to be a part of what it was to be the church. Is that there were going to be times, there was going to be instances of persecution. And so one of the things he wrote to them were some instructions on what they were to do in hard times. What did they were to do in, in, uh, in challenging times? Times when you're outnumbered, times when you're overpowered, times when when things are not going your way. So somebody read First Peter five seven. What does that say? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Alright. Without getting too far into all of that, <clears throat> understand this is a simple instruction. And what makes us anxious today, I don't know what would have bothered very many people back then. All right, we're, we're a little bit sensitive. And I'm not trying to be rude or anything. I'm not trying to diminish things that you're anxious about. They, they had bigger fish to fry than some of the fish we're frying. They had bigger problems than some of the things that we consider problems today. And, but, but the reality of it is that we do get anxious over things. And so Peter, he's saying to us, he's saying to them, when you're anxious about something, cast that upon God because He cares for you. All right, that's the instruction. 
But understand that he's talking to a people that are being chased down in the street. He's talking to people that are being arrested for their faith. He's talking to a people that are being killed for what they believe in. And so their anxieties were probably a different level than what our anxieties are. I mean, you start looking at the history of the church and some of the places that he's writing to. You look at the history of the church and some of the places that, that, that he's sending this general letter out to. They were facing some really hard times. There were some places he's writing to that were facing famine. I mean, real famine. There were some places he's writing to that they were facing you know, death. They were facing a jail. They were facing all kinds of things and, and all kinds of opposition that were coming their way. And so they were outnumbered. They were overpowered. They were facing things that were of consequence in their lives in, in a real world way. And his instruction to them was to cast that upon God. Now, do you see how that's the same thing Hezekiah was doing here? In a real world way, Hezekiah was under some threat. A real threat that he had seen face to face through the Reb Shekah. A real threat that all he had to do was look around him and see the kingdoms that had fallen at the hand of the Assyrian army. He had plenty of evidence. He didn't have to wonder about it. He wasn't making it up. In other words, he wasn't making up something to be afraid of. He wasn't making up something to, to, to worry about. These are real things that were happening around him. Now he had a direct threat from the king, from the king of the Assyrians that were coming to get you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Okay, there's a cause for anxiety. Alright, so he takes that, lays it before God on the altar. He said, here it is. He casts his burden. He casts his cares upon God. So, he gives us a good what here. What to do when troubles and difficulties come your way. That's what he's given us. It's the same what that Peter gives the early church. But we see Hezekiah giving it to us in this example in Isaiah, or if you look at it in Kings, where he's just laying this out. So what do you do with troubles and difficulties? You lay them out before God. And you recognize He, God, is your first resource. And your best resource. Not your smarts, not what you have, not the stuff you have, not the influence you have, not the authority you have. God is always your best resource and the best place to go. Training yourself to do that. Training yourself to do that. Now you notice I said training yourself. You have to train yourself to do that. I have to train myself to do that. Because we have a natural reaction to things. And we have a natural direction that we go in. We have a natural reaction to, to where we're going to go first. We have a natural reaction to, to how we're going to handle things. We have a natural reaction about how to take care of things. It's a natural thing. We grew up with it. We've done it. We've seen it. We've we experienced it in our life. Okay, okay. But we can retrain ourselves that we have a better resource than us. We can retrain ourselves that we have someone that cares about us that we can cast our cares upon, according to Peter. But it takes a while to retrain yourself. And if you've ever tried to change a habit, you know what I'm talking about. It takes a while. And it takes repeated times over and over and over again in order to see change happen in our lives. And so if you expect to say, all right, yeah, this is what I'm going to do from now on. When something comes and, and it's threatening or something comes and I'm feeling outnumbered or overpowered, when something comes and, it, and it's troubles or difficulties, I'm going to go straight to God first thing. Now you can say that. But the reality is that may not be your first impulse. The reality is that may not even be your second impulse. That's where the training has to come in 
that you remind yourself or you have a reminder somewhere, take it to God. Lay it before God. God is my best resource no matter what the circumstance. He's always the best resource. And let's start there. And He may direct you into some action. He may direct you into some inaction. He may direct you to a certain way to pray. He may direct you to something that you're supposed to do. He may direct you to to pull on some other resource or to speak to somebody or whatever it is. I have no idea. But let Him be your first and best resource in every circumstance. He needs to be your first and best resource in every circumstance. Not your last desperation call. That tends to be the human way. We exhaust everything we can possibly do, and then, in desperation, we call on God. That's backwards. Hezekiah shows us that's backwards. Peter, in his letter to the churches, is telling them that that's backwards. That you go to your first and your best resource first, you cast your cares upon Him, you lay them out before Him, and see what He has to say or what He wants to do about it. Give Him the option. Give Him the opportunity to do that. It's recognizing that He is the first and He is the best resource that may remind us and lead us to lay those things before Him. So what do you lay before Him? Now, this is a valid question because people, and I run into people, they think they're bothering God. You, you think you're bothering Him. Like He's busy doing something else. And you're just going to bug Him now that you need some help. That's not how He works. Okay? We can't conceive of this. Not really, but He's an infinite being. Right? He can be everywhere all the time. In other words, He can hear everything all at once and be able to discern what it is and be able to move in that circumstance. So, it's inconceivable in that sense to believe that you're bothering Him. Because He can pay you specific and individual attention without taking attention away from anything else He's doing. I know that's hard for us to understand. But we're finite. In other words, as a finite being... Somebody could be talking to me and somebody else could be talking to me and I could be trying to do something, but I can't pay attention to all three 100%. There's no way. Because I have a finite mind and I, I can't do that. And so we can't put our limitation onto Him. So we've got to realize that as an infinite being, we're not bothering Him. We're not bugging Him. And, and you know where you run into the problem with this? Is and I'm not going to get too Dr. Phil on you here, but what I want you to get is like if you let's say your father, your mother, busy people, and as a child you just you're trying to get their attention, you're trying to talk to them, and you're trying to to get them to help you with something, and they were too busy. And somewhere in your little brain and your little heart, you made a judgment about that, and so that judgment carries over into your other relationships. It could be other relationships with authority figures. It could be other relationships like with your boss. Or it could be other relationships with God. Whatever that parent might represent in your life later on, if you've never dealt with the fact that they were a finite being and they did the best they could and that was it, and you never moved on from that, then you might think to yourself, well, God probably just doesn't have any time for that. I don't want to bother Him with that. The silliness. That silliness. Because that's not... His nature. That's not who He is. That's not how He operates. And so what is God looking for us to go and lay before Him? He's looking for us to go and lay before Him everything. Everything. I'm going to give you an all-inclusive word. Everything. If it's enough to bother you, then it's enough to lay before Him. If it's enough to cause you anxiety, it's enough to lay before Him. If it's enough to make you nervous, it's enough to lay before Him. If it's enough to keep you awake at night, that's enough to lay before Him. If it's enough to keep you awake in the morning. When you wake up, you can't get back to sleep. That's enough to lay that thing before Him. You follow? He's looking for everything. 
that he's offering that. Whether or not you're willing to take him up on that, whether or not you're willing to see him that way, whether or not you're willing to lay those things out before him, whether or not you're willing to see him as your first and best resource, that's up to you. That's up to you. All I'm talking about is what he's offering you. Peter tried to, he told the church, he's like, this is how you do it. Whether they did it or not, that's up to them. All right, Peter was writing a letter. He wasn't even there. He was just letting them know, this is your resource. You can, you can lay this before God. You're anxious about something. You're worried about something. You're scared about something. You don't know what to do. You're confused about something. You got stuff bothering you. You got stuff that's laying on you as a burden. Take it to God. Now, there's no way Peter could have followed up on every church. He just made the offer. And so I want to lay that out to you as an offer. I'm going to lay that out to as an offer for your life to be able to take that to God. So everything, all of your troubles, small, great, are best dealt with by spreading them before the Lord. Whatever is important enough to disturb you is important enough to spread before God. So I look at Philippians 4.6. Here we see Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Philippians 4.6. Somebody read that. All right, so here's Paul, right into the church in Philippi. Don't be anxious about what? The big things? Anything. Anything. That's where I'm getting this from. I'm not making it up, okay? Small or great. Anything. Everything. If it's enough to disturb you, then it's enough, important enough to lay before God. And that's what Paul was telling the church at Philippi, is that don't be anxious about anything. Then why do you carry anxiety? We have, Paul's trying to tell the church, like, don't, don't carry anxiety in your life. Don't. Wherever it comes from, small or great, don't carry anxiety. Be anxious for nothing. But in, in how much should you bring it before God? Everything. See, those are absolute words, right? Anything and everything. They're absolute words. They, there's no exclusion. There's nothing being excluded there. There's nothing that is being left out or left behind. Well, what he really means there is everything but what? The thing that's bothering you? Yeah, right. You mean the little stuff that you don't want to bother God with? Yeah, that's included in everything and anything, I hope. No, and, and this is important. I want you to hear me because some of you struggle with this. And you've got to get over this. You really struggle with the facts like, yeah, God doesn't care about that. Yeah, He does. God isn't concerned about that. Well, He is. What's the point of believing in the all-powerful, infinite God of the universe if you don't really believe that's how He is? Do you follow? We don't believe in some demigod. We don't believe in some God that has certain powers but not other powers. We don't believe in some God that can't see everything all at once. We don't believe in some God the same yesterday, today, and forever because that's who God says He is. We don't believe in some God that, that had to have help to create something. He did it all Himself. There is nothing beyond what He can do. Nothing. We don't have to apply our human attributes to our God. We don't have to. That's not the God we believe in. Other cultures, that's what they did. Other cultures, they made their God in some kind of human form because they, well, I guess when you're designing a God, you're going to use part of yourself because what else do you have? But our God defined Himself. 
Our God defined who He was and revealed Himself to us. We weren't trying to somehow create a God. He created us. And that was kind of the, the point that Paul made when in, in Acts 17 he was speaking to the Areopagus and he was talking to the philosophers and he was talking to the, the academics that were there. And he was making a point. He, he was saying that, you know, and he was making a, a point of their altar. He had found an altar in Athens that was to the unknown God. And what he said was like, all right, well, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you who this unknown God is. I'm going to introduce you to him. Because they had made an altar to an unknown God in case they missed one. You see, they're covering their bases. And so Paul makes a point, and, and the point is this, is that you didn't, we didn't create this unknown God. He created us. We don't define what He is. He defines who we are. And he was making a, a philosophical point with the Athenians in that it was what is the genesis of our God? Is it us or is it Him? And in, in, in a way that they could in some ways understand but not too obvious and they'd have to think it through, he was saying he got it backwards. And that's what he was letting them know. They had it backwards. And when he was done speaking to that Areopagus, there were a few of them that believed. There were a few of them that followed after Jesus. There were a few of them that, that, that really came around and formed the, the beginnings and planted a seed of a church in Athens. But not everyone was willing to hear that. Not everyone was willing to hear that they had it backwards. And, and I suppose it's always going to be the case that when our ideas are challenged and when our ideas are really, they come up against something a little bit different, we're either going to ignore it and keep going the way we're going or we're going to allow for a moment where maybe, maybe we need to change our mind. Maybe we need to look at something differently. Maybe we need to see something differently than what we've seen. And so he were brought to that place. And if you're one of those people, it's like, yeah, God doesn't have time, you're going to have to see that differently or you're not going to move further into this. You're not, you're not going to really take it to heart that your first and best resource is God because you're always going to have that caveat in there, oh, if he feels like it. No. If he's got time to hear me. No. Well, this doesn't seem that important. Yeah, it is. Does it bother you? Then it's that important. Does it give you anxiety? It's that important. Does it cause fear in your life? Then it's that important. Are you irritated about it? Then it's that important. God wants to hear that. He wants you to lay it out before Him. He wants you to cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. And so we're left with a, a question, and it's kind of, I'll make the statement, say, trusting God. Because that's what I'm talking about, trusting God, in trusting Him with the stuff going on in our life. <coughs> trusting God, is it folly, or is it wisdom? And you're going to have to answer that. Is it folly or wisdom? My opinion, based on my experience with this, is that it's wisdom. Because I've seen God faithful in a variety of circumstances over a bunch of years. In the small things and in the big things. And the real test of that for me is what I carry with me. Again, my willing carry that amount of anxiety in my life. I sure don't want to. I sure don't want to. And so I have a, an option. And I believe it's wisdom to take the option of laying it before God.
That's what I believe. And I wonder about sometimes people say it's folly. Why? Why? Interesting studies, if you ever want to Google some studies on people that have a confession of faith and and look at their health. It's kind of interesting because you think to yourself, well, as Christians we'd say, and somebody asked me straight up, they'd say, well, you know, do you believe this? I'd say, I, I don't know. I assume people are just people and and all that. And I know people are just people, but there's studies that have been done that they look at people that have a confession of faith versus people that don't. Looking at different health issues, looking at different mental issues, looking at mental issues under stress, looking at mental issues in, in adverse circumstances, all kinds of different criteria in that. And over and over and over again, the people of faith do better than the people of no faith. And that's not like church studies, that's, you know, just social science and people doing studies out there and, and looking at those kind of issues. And so you can say, well, it's just folly, you know, you believe what you believe. Well, there's a real world ap- application to it that brings about some real word, world results. That even people with no faith can measure those results. Kind of interesting. Because to me, it points to what I already know to be wisdom. And I wouldn't base my faith on some studies, you know, whatever. I wouldn't base my faith on that. I base my faith on the living God. I base my faith on what He says. I base my faith on the experiences that I've had. I base my faith on what I have actually gone through, seen, and experienced in my own life. I'm going to base my faith on that. But it's kind of cool when you look and you see something that people that don't have any faith or could care less about find the same thing that I've found over these years. That it does matter. And it does make a difference. So Hezekiah, he lays it out. You know, however many pages this letter was, he unrolls it or however they did it back then, I don't know. He unrolls the scroll, the pages, lays it before God. And then the Bible says he prayed. And you can read his prayer. It's right after this, what he prayed. Kind of interestingly, but Hezekiah's faith was greater after receiving the letter. Okay? Now, there's something to be said for that. That he he's in the city. Everything's going along the way it's going along. The Reb Shekhar had come. The Reb Shekhar had gone. There was a miraculous deliverance that took place in all of that. And we see that happening. So that had taken place. And here he was in the city and he gets this letter from the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And his faith, after he reads his letter, which was supposed to demean him, demean his God, demean his faith. It was supposed to discourage him. It was supposed to make him afraid. It was supposed to do all these kind of break his faith and all of these things. What actually happened was after he got the letter, he had even more faith. And he took that letter and he spread it out before the Lord. Because he had been, not only did he have more faith, but it, it, part of the equation of that faith is that he was also being encouraged by the prophet Isaiah in the book that we're reading by the prophetic word. Because Isaiah was letting him know. Was letting him know what God was saying. Was letting him know what, what God was pointing out. Was letting him know what God was saying was about to happen. Was letting him know what it was he was supposed to do. So he's being encouraged by that. And so, he spreads this out before God. Now what I say about the letter made fun of God, right? Made fun of the judge. Made fun of the arbiter. And so part of Hezekiah's prayer, if you read it, is he says to God, he's like, God, guard your own honor. He's like, here, this is what this guy's saying about you. He might not like me. I'm not that worried about that. But here's what he says about you. Now, God already knew what, he already knew what Sennacherib said about him, okay? That, that's all right. 
what he was responding to and what God responds to in our life is us taking and laying that before him. Because you can get into this really weird place where you look and say, well, God already knows my needs. Yeah, he does. Do you? You see, <laughs> you see the, the exercise here isn't for God's sake, it's for yours. The exercise here wasn't for God's sake, it was for Hezekiah's sake. To be able to read that letter and say, hey, this isn't really about me. This is about God. He's making fun of my God. I'm going to take this to God. Here, lay it out. Here it is. You see what he's saying? Well, God already knew what he was saying. God's not really that worried about it. But he is concerned with you and me. He's concerned that that Hezekiah saw him as his first and best resource. He's concerned that Hezekiah saw things clearly for what they really were. And what they really were is that you got this guy Sennacherib, prideful as he was, you got the Reb Shekha, who was representing Sennacherib, prideful as he was, and they were both making fun of the living God of the universe. They were making fun of the judge. Well, there we go. Hezekiah recognized that. That's the important part of this. And laid it before God. And so he asked God to answer the insolence of Sennacherib. So I think that's just a kind of a neat uh, way of seeing this in this sense that what that does is point us to Hezekiah. What does that point about Hezekiah? Is that Hezekiah saw things for as they were. The truth. Hezekiah wasn't feeling bad for himself necessarily. He wasn't thinking it was all about him. Because it wasn't. He wasn't taking it personally. He wasn't saying, well, you know, it's my fault or whatever it was. He saw it for what it was. And that's what he laid before God. There's something really powerful about living in reality. If you don't know this. There's something really powerful about living in truth. That empowers you. Because as you can see things for as they really are. Not take it personally. Not get all hurt. Not get all upset. Not to take offense. Not to get all up in it because somebody got you all mad about something, but to see things for as they really are, perspective, truth, there's something powerful about that. <coughs> now, there's something noble Something noble, when faith increases, is dangers increase. What do I mean by that? I mean, whatever that trigger is in us, as danger increases, as the threat increases, as resistance increases, as people coming after us begins to increase, as we face increased opposition... There's something noble about our faith increasing with that which we're facing. And that's something that I believe that God wants to develop in us. That God really wants to foster in us. That God really wants to cultivate in our lives. That instead of freezing, instead of running, instead of hiding, instead of just getting angry, Instead of, instead of lashing out, that the response in us to increased resistance is an increase in faith. That we're going to believe God for more. More, more, and more. And it's this noble aspect... <coughs> This noble aspect that I believe we begin to 
And I want you to follow me just for a second here. We begin to depart from what some would call common sense. In that we set aside our self-preservation, we set aside our normal reactions, and we allow for a supernatural reaction to the circumstance at hand. If you're a fighter, then you may have to set that aside. If you're a runner, then you may have to set that aside. If you're someone that hides, set that aside. And that's what I mean by that, is that we're going to begin to allow for God to do something different in our lives. To teach us something different. To teach us something that is going to be more useful and more productive in the kingdom. Because I'll tell you something, and I... I don't know if this is going to make any sense to you, but you have an enemy, Satan, the adversary, however you want to see him, the devil, that's described through the scriptures and described through the teachings of Jesus. You have an enemy. And I'll leave it in these general terms. If your enemy can intimidate you into inaction, He will continue to do that in your life. In other words, if it's working, he ain't going to let up. But as you become a person where you face opposition and your faith increases, you become a person that when you face some kind of resistance, you get even more faith and you begin to move even more supernaturally I'm not going to tell you he's going to totally leave you alone. But I will tell you this, that things will change. Things will change in the opposition that you're facing. Because if opposition makes you stronger spiritually, then it ain't working. And you'll have to try something else. Now, how does this apply to anything? Well, when we got leadership, this is something I tell people. And if you've ever done anything in leadership with us, you may have heard this from me or somebody else. But you face opposition. Let's say you don't feel well. well I'm just going to cancel the meeting. Uh, you're probably not going to feel well a lot then. Oh, I can't go out and do that. I can't go out and minister because I don't. You know, I'm a little tired today. Well, you're going to be tired more. Does that make sense to anybody? Because spiritually, that I've seen that over the years, that as we don't rise to, to the occasion, as we don't respond to resistance in our life with some kind of faith, then it just keeps happening. But as faith rises up in us, and we begin to see God as our first and best resource, and we begin to lay these things before Him, and we continue on in what God's called us to do, you see less and less of those things that you've seen in the past in your life. Now, can I prove that? Probably not. Have I seen it? Have I experienced it? Have I seen other people experience it? Yeah. Lots of times. And so I can only encourage you toward that in that I believe that God wants you to live a life that you're going to overcome and not submit to the resistance of the enemy. Sennacherib thought he could write a letter and intimidate Hezekiah. Well, he he couldn't do it. And he could frame it any way he wanted. But there was one thing Hezekiah knew. Hezekiah understood the truth of the matter. What was the truth of the matter? The truth of the matter is that he represented one little kingdom perched on a rock versus a mighty, vast kingdom that was going to swallow them up. That was the truth. And Hezekiah understood one other thing is that in, the, in, in view of that, his first and best resource was going to be his God. And his reaction was to lay it out before him. 
hear this. And you can read um, later on see what happens. But what happens is, is that Sennacherib never made it. Never made it. Never did it. And Hezekiah was right in his faith. And God honored that. But I believe God wants to honor that in our lives too. And so I want to encourage you. We're going to take a few moments right now. And you need to kind of look at who you are. And I'm not here to tell you who you are. I'm just saying you need to look at who you are. And we all have different reactions and we all have different ways of handling things. We all have different ways of dealing with things. We all have different responses to things. And I I can't really answer what your response is. I know some of you well enough to kind of know some of that. But it, it, it doesn't matter what I know. You need to know. And, and I want to encourage you tonight to ask God to retrain you. To, to retrain the way that you respond to anxiety. To retrain the way that you respond to opposition. To retrain you in the way that you respond to troubles and difficulties and all things that you're going to face in life. The anxieties of life. Heavenly Father, I just ask you that as we consider who we are, the reality of it, we all represent really different responses to the things that bother us, the things that give us anxiety, the things that scare us, things that come against us, things that work against us, the difficulties and the troubles that we face in life. All of us have different responses to that. But God, I pray that you begin to retrain us. To retrain our our heart, our spirit. To retrain our mind. To see things differently. To understand what it means to not be anxious about anything. But in everything, make our request known to you. To lay it out. God, I thank you for the example of Hezekiah. I thank you, God, that he laid it out. That he took it to you. That even though the situation looked impossible, faith said, It was more than possible what you could do. So God, I call upon faith to rise up in your people. I call upon faith to rise above circumstance, situation, I call upon faith to be greater than whatever it is we're facing. Teach us, God. God, I thank you that you're able tonight. (coughs) Give you thanks. Do your work. Do your work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's go by saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, so a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997, 
That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an afterwards of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah. 